This is the All Sports Podcast devoted to your favorite teams in North Texas. Welcome to Ballsy, a production of the Dallas Morning News and Sports Day. Our weekly show is proudly hosted. Okay, strike that. Our show is hosted by Kevin Sherrington, Evan Grant, and myself. I'm David Moore, and who knows, maybe we'll have a special guest or two along the way. Catch other episodes by subscribing to the Ballsy Podcast on iTunes. We're also on social media. Just search Ballsy Podcast on Facebook and Twitter, and you'll be notified of the latest episode. Don't forget, it's Ballsy with a Z. Are you ready, sports fans? Ballsy starts now. Hello, everybody. Welcome into Ballsy, the Sports Day DFW Dallas Morning News Sports Podcast. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by David Moore in front of his blanket. Hi, David. Hello, Kevin. How are you? That's great. And Evan Grant, who has apparently scored a touchdown. Hi, Evan. Hi. I was just letting everybody know that it only took about 12 seconds into the podcast before you froze up. <laughs> well, it was just a it was a blip. It was just a, a, a short, small thing here. We still haven't gotten our uh, our Wi-Fi uh, issues resolved here at the house. Just in case anybody from AT and T might be uh, you know paying attention to this, maybe they would like to come rescue us. But anyway. all righty. Uh, so. Uh, we, we have some things happening in some sports, as uh, Jose noted. We have uh, uh, MLS opening up uh, on July the 8th, which is a month, a little less than a month from today. Yeah, but, um, but, but won't that conflict with Major League Baseball coming back? <laughs> Major League Baseball, which continues to simply, I don't know if the right word would be just urinate down its leg, but uh, it has really, really screwed up in uh and it's trying to figure out how to get this game started again it's just they have so embarrassed themselves i think at this point in time and caused themselves damage and and i think that i i think david that the nba has has fully seized upon this and it sounds like the league is looking towards re uh redoing its schedule so that maybe long term they'd start december 1st and then run up against baseball into into august and and kind of take away baseball's exclusivity pretty much year-round um baseball the, the owners and the players seem to be locked into this tug of war over this year and these petty um trust things for this year and trying to win a negotiation this year and meanwhile uh, I, I'm just sick about the lack of foresight that the league has shown uh, when it comes to the long-term health of the game. To, to me, this, I, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Kevin. Well, I just want to ask a question for Evan. Did, uh, because I, I've tried to keep up with all this as best I can, even though I, I hate labor negotiations. Um, is Is everything being negotiated for this year? Is there anything that could possibly – run into next year and, and because I could see if either side was trying to slip something in here that was going to have longer term ramifications, I could see them being frustrated by that then. And, uh, but if everything is restricted to this year in the negotiations now, I, I don't have any sympathy for anybody. 
Well, I, I mean, I, I think, again, that, you know, the, the union looks at any kind of, of uh, salary cap or, or limitation on salaries as something that the, that the owners would then use again in, in the next round of negotiations. There have been some minor, some, some minor elements of certain proposals that have been made that could impact free agency in a, I think, in a relatively minor way. Would it benefit the players a little bit? Yeah, because it might eliminate some drag on some of the free agent contracts if teams don't lose draft pick compensation for for signing a uh, for signing a free agent. But I think they've just diddled along so much that right now the even if they had listen, I had hoped when this whole thing started back in March that they would approach this as let's do a two for one, let's get this year solved and put some building blocks in place so that the next CBA is a little bit more seamless and that we don't have this, this animosity, they've, they've disregarded that entirely. And so at this point in time, it's just about getting together something that re- represents a season. And, and right now, uh, you know, it, it still seems like the most likely possibility is that Rob Manfred mandates a season of about 50 games. And so you're going to have the ability to have played – 75 or 80 or 82 games and baseball is going to say nah we'll give you less Hmm. yeah and i I, you know i think i think baseball has been in the most difficult position of all the sports because like say basketball you know nba and nhl was deep enough into their seasons it was okay let's just suspend it decide how we can get back and how that how that impacts the start of the next season. Now that that's a lot to juggle, but at least 60, you know, two thirds of the season or more had already been completed in both of those sports. Football was far enough out where it's like, okay, let's conduct all of our off season business and we'll see how this plays out and we'll just plan to come back at that time. But baseball was actually never got to start. So while, while you can acknowledge it was the most difficult position to be in. To me, what this has really exposed is just the the mistrust between the two sides runs so deep. And and you know, I know we've talked about this before, but whatever your business dynamic is, whatever the flaws are and the weaknesses are, they're going to be exposed in this environment. And and I think this has really exposed Major League Baseball. And because Again, just the fact that both sides can't come to agreement on this just is about salvaging or saving this particular season. We're not laying the groundwork. We're not setting a precedent for what our interactions are going to be going forward uh, from, a, from a business standpoint. We have to recognize this as a unique uh, time and respond to it. The fact they both sides can't approach it in that way just shows how uh one it we're not just talking about right now when you talk about labor peace in this sport going forward uh what we've seen here certainly doesn't bode well for how this is going to play out when you look at reaching a new collective bargaining agreement no i i mean i the what i see at this point in time is once you get on the field this year um it's really not going to be about this season and you could even in a 50 game season, there are all kinds of experimentations that you could, you could do and things you could um, kind of uh, tweak to, to make it a, a product worth talking about. But once you get on the field, 
this year and right through all of next season, it's going to be a repeat of 1994 where the conversations are solely about impending labor doom. And what happens with that is, well, nothing good happens from that, right? Because both sides rattle their sabers. One side pisses the other side off and it just ratchets up even more. And you just get to a point where, where everybody's so locked in that a doomsday scenario happens. It, it, it to me is, is just really it defies explanation why baseball has taken this approach on both sides. I, I do say one, one thing though, I, I you know, the, the sides negotiated in March that players will be paid a pro rata rate for games played. Um, and, and I think that, that the rank and file of both fans and players look at that as that Major League Baseball players acknowledged and accepted what would amount to a 50% pay cut. But the, I, I think in some regards, the principle of force majeure kind of applies here, right? A, a, a force or an event that, that does not allow for for contracts to be fulfilled. So you kind of have to take that off of the table and then start from, okay, what do you do now? Do I think the owners could pay the full prorated rate for an 80 game schedule? Yes, I think they could. Are they going to demand some kind of give back? Of course they are, because what owners try and do is win negotiations. And I think if, if players acknowledge that in, in, are willing to take some kind of token cut, we can get this thing underway quicker. Um, but I get the player's principle that, you know, why should we, we're the ones taking health risks. We're the ones who are going to expose ourselves. Why should we take even less from the negotiated contracts that we have? I think the thing that uh, is frustrating, and, I, and at least from, from the fan standpoint, is that, you know, long ago, I, I stopped caring about how much money these guys make. You know, I can remember when Nolan Ryan got a million-dollar contract and everybody just flipped, you know, about that. I can you know, remember Jackie Sherrill's $262,000 contract at Texas A&M and how everybody flipped uh, that they, he could make that much. And now you can't even uh, buy a good secondary coach for $262,000 a year. So, the, you know, no one's arguing about – uh, how much Brad Pitt's making per movie. Nobody cares. He's an entertainer. We don't know how much money he makes. And, uh, and that just goes on. And these guys make it an extraordinary amount of money. Now, uh, uh, in the, I've, I've almost always been on the side of players in these deals because of what Evan talked about, not only the risks they take uh, this year because of the virus, but the risks they take for their, their long-term risks that, that athletes take mentally and physically. Now, in baseball, less than the others, but there are certain risks that they do take out there. Uh, when a guy's throwing 98 miles an hour and you're standing at the plate, you're taking a risk. Uh, so there, there are things here that they, they have to fight for. But uh, I, I, I wonder at this point, it, because this is also a point that readers often express to me, is that at what point will baseball players realize that there are people out there that are unemployed, that there are people out there that are sick? You know, why can't they just – just this one time, do this and do it as part of, of, of a greater good here. Just to, just so people could see baseball and enjoy it. And, uh, and I, they seem to be 
so dug in, and probably this goes back to David's point that the, to show you the distance between the two sides and the animosity between the two sides that, yeah, we do that and the, and the owners win and, uh, and, they will, and they will use this against us. And uh, I, it just to me feels like the players really need a little bit better counsel in, on this deal. And I, and I know the last thing you're going to do is expect your union head to say, hey, hey, guys, let's just go ahead and take this deal and we'll look like the good guys here. You know, that, that's just not that's not what they're there for. I get it. You know, I understand that. But at some point, I really do believe, uh, especially now at this point, this season is wrecked. You know, it's it's done. And and I th so that's what I feel like is so then what's the harm in just doing something that looks like uh, it's it's not a white flag but it's a peace flag. Well, I, I think Kevin that from the players' perspective, if if you end up taking if you end up taking the mandate from from Manfred of whatever it is a forty eight or fifty game season, at least at that point in time you haven't you haven't given in from your principles, and so you haven't given the owners any ability to grab for a bigger piece of the pie next year. Um, and, and I think that is part of the player strategy. I, I do agree with you. You know, you look at, at when this union was at, at its strongest, and clearly they were fighting for things. The salaries were nowhere near what they were now, what they are now. But you look at the years of Marvin Miller and you look at the years of Don Fear, um, and I'm not in any way going to say that Don Fear was a good faith negotiator, but these were labor lawyers. That was their background. Tony Clark is, he's not a labor lawyer. And, and I think that he negotiated the last CBA in a, in a good faith environment to get players some quality of life type issues. And what's been exposed is that it allowed the owners um, a lot more latitude for what, you know, amounts to some degree of collusion on the free agent market, um, that it has allowed the owners to, to push back and, and get, more, um, uh, get more of the pie from the players. And so you know, I, I, it would not surprise me to see after this season to see the Players Association say, look, we, we still want Tony Clark's voice as a part of the Players Association but we need a lawyer in the room negotiating the, the CBAs. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the, that's the longer term that the shorter term is like, I mean, both of you have touched on this. It's, there's a, an anticipation and an excitement, I think among sports fans about, Oh, how's this NBA model going to work when it comes back? Oh, NHL is talking about doing this. Can, can the NFL really go the way, you know, they say they're going to go and they should be in that window. Now, you know, every sport needs to expand beyond its core audience to survive. And there's still a core audience in baseball and every sport that's going to be there. But the joy and anticipation of Major League Baseball coming back is dissipating. And, and that's kind of, that's kind of a, a, an underlying emotional baseline entering a season. And I don't know that you want a significant portion of your fan base just rolling your eyes going, Oh, okay. Well, it's about time they got this done, because because that puts you in a different frame of mind about how aggressive or passionate you're going to be about the return of that sport. Now, you can you'll work through that emotionally if you're a true fan, and and I get that, but it takes time and it erodes your overall business model, 
And that's where baseball is now. I think everyone, there's a lot of anticipation and going, wow, it'd be great if, if NBA can do this. And what about hockey and all that? And, and baseball is just, come on, really? And it goes back to your point, Evan. I mean, even if it comes back now, even the people that are passionate about it and love the sport are going to say, well, okay, but still they took away 30 games we could have had. So what's going on here? Uh, well, you know, they say we're the most important element of this. We're clearly not. Well, and also you, now, now you've got Evan. Just be quiet. Uh, you've got Colonial uh, starting yeah. up tomorrow. I think that that's going forward. It will be really interesting to me to see if this this year. I, I think because of everything coming back, baseball will start to slip, and it will start to slip in the in the public imagination. Uh, and it was already doing that. You know, in most markets now, obviously the NFL is number one, but in most markets. ESPN tells us, by the way, they apportion their talent that the NBA is number two. That's not that's not true in this market. Although I would have to believe that 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 the Mavericks are probably going to be fast gaining on, on the cow, on the Rangers in popularity. And and I'm not so sure the Rangers are more popular than the Mavericks in, in this market. Well, they they have a, it. It's a, it's a, it's a question. Uh, I think it, it's uh, it's fairly. I would say it's probably fairly even at this point. And uh, they have a you know, and I'm sure there's a, a, a demography question here about that. And uh, because you know the Rangers, uh, you know the, the the old feeling about the the te- the fan base in, in Arlington was that it was uh, oh we're getting people from from by being in Arlington we get Dallas people we get. We get Fort Worth people. Well, that wasn't really the truth. You know, as, as Tom Hicks once told me, you know, most of those people, most of their fan base, season ticket fan base comes from Collin County and Dallas, not from not from Fort Worth, not even from Arlington. Uh, it, it is a predominantly white fan base. There's no question about that. The Mavericks is, is far more uh, eclectic and diverse. So uh, I, I don't know what that means going forward. Uh, and, and I don't know how much that means because of the times we are now in. It, it will be interesting to see how all this plays out. There's so many things now I feel like we are almost starting from scratch here in a lot of ways. And, uh, and I, I will be very interested to see what happens going forward. And this is, again, Kevin, this just reemphasizes to me the whole idea um, of how off base baseball is in this, in that it seems to be operating from a stance of business as usual. Um, and it's not, business is not, it's, it's not the same. Our world is changing. Um, it's market share has changed. Um, it's just a different place. And, and the fact that baseball owners by and large, either don't seem to realize this or Rob Manfred doesn't seem to realize this and the owners are buying what Rob Manfred is selling. It's just not, it's just not a good position for the long-term health of, of the game. And it's disappointing because I think we all, we all like the sport. We'd all want to see the sport succeed, but I think in some regards it, it's, it, it's at the risk of cannibalizing itself from over money um, and not paying attention to, to larger issues. Look, you just mentioned the whole race thing. And I talked to Delano De Shields last week, and we talked about the number of African-American players involved in the game now, and it's down to 7.7%, um, which is as low as it's been in, in 
30 in 30 years and I think that baseball is going to continue to lose support among the African-American community if it isn't more sensitive to what's going on in the world around it. Certainly, it certainly can no longer tread on the idea of how progressive a sport it was when it, it waited so long to issue any kind of statement or act after, after all of the protests and after the George Floyd death. Um, and, and the NBA, the NFL, as late as it was, at least Roger Goodell finally came out and, and acknowledged that the league had made some had made some mistakes. Three years too late, but acknowledged the league had made some mistakes. Baseball just basically released a meaningless statement. Yeah, the sport of Jackie Robinson uh, has has not uh, distinguished itself, and and of course we, we we've seen those things happen, and and uh, uh, and there have been lots of obviously lots of concern over the years about um, uh, and, and baseball has expressed this over and over and over again. It's uh, oh, we're, we're concerned about the fact that so few black athletes from America uh, from, from, from North America have uh, decided they want to, you know, or want to play baseball and want to pursue the sport. Um, it, it supposedly is a legitimate concern, but there are so many things that baseball doesn't understand, I think. And, and uh, I wrote about this the other day, talking about uh, a conversation I had once with uh, Donald Harris, who was a, uh, the Rangers top draft pick one year. I, I, I was assigned to go to Butte, Montana, when, after he was drafted and spend a week uh, with the team on the road. That was in, in June. I got there on June the 21st and it snowed in Montana. Um, and anyway, it was, it was a lot of fun. Bump Wills was the manager. It was all, it was a hoot doing this thing, riding around the bus with these guys and doing all this stuff. Uh, Donald was a really good guy. Played at Texas Tech. He was from Waco. He was a foot, two, two sports star, a football player at Texas Tech and also a baseball player. And they, uh, they infamously drafted Donald instead of Frank Thomas. Uh, which kind of scarred a lot of people. Uh, but at any rate, uh, a few years later, I saw uh, Donald and uh, I was talking to him and he was telling me about how he said, you know, baseball is just hard uh, for a lot of black athletes. And he said, you, he said, you know, Donald, for whatever else he lacked as a baseball player, he was a superb center fielder. And uh, he said, the other day I, I caught a ball and I was running towards the track and I just, ran up the wall and did a backflip off of it. And he says, and they were not happy that I'd done that. You know, not, not the fans, the fans were all, you know, hooting and laughing and thought it was great, but you know, management, we, we don't, we don't want that kind of thing. We don't want those kind of celebrations, you know, and, and, and Donald's point was, you know, in football, you celebrate in basketball, you celebrate. How come, how come you can't celebrate in baseball? And, and I, and I think these are things that, that people see, you know, it's, uh, you, you, you know, uh, you know, basketball has really, and I, and I can see where some people wouldn't like this, but basketball, starting with David Stern, really marketed stars instead of teams. You know, we're, we're about people here. You know, we're about these celebrities. And, and, and of course, you have fewer players on basketball teams, and it's easier to do that. Um, certainly fewer superstars uh, to deal with. But there's just a feeling that uh, there are a lot of things in baseball that, that you just don't do. And, and, and as somebody like myself who – has spent so much time loving baseball my whole life. Both of my boys played baseball. One of them played baseball in college. And, um, and you know, that's not something that that's, it's not just not popular with 
black kids, not that popular with white kids anymore either, you know? And so the fact that both of them have loved baseball, I feel like it's part of because of the fact that I do. Um, but uh, it, it doesn't have the same appeal. You know, going forward, you know, you, you see what young people like. They like basketball. They like, everybody likes football. They like basketball. They like soccer. Uh, they follow the Premier League. You know, these are, these are long-term questions for baseball in my mind. Um, and, uh, and, and sometimes you need an event – or sometimes an event, you don't need it, but sometimes an event does become a, uh, a turning point. Uh, certainly we saw that with the cancellation of the World Series in 1994. That was a turning point for a lot of fans. Uh, and then, you know, it, it enabled the steroids era. You know, we, you know, the baseball turned a blind eye to all that because the numbers were so great and the fans were so excited. It's like, let's not do anything to screw this all up. Let's just kind of, let's just, kind of wink and nod and, and we'll just let it go well i don't know what it would take now for for baseball to recover from the public relations damage of all of this uh, I, but i do think there will be damage and i and i do think that if next year you, the teams go to spring training uh i think there i think there'll be a lot of people who will feel like you know what i don't uh, I, I got by without baseball last year i can get by without it this year Look, I'll just go back to this, and and I, I don't know if we talked about this last year, last week, or if, if I talked about it with somebody else, but um, after the strike, it really took baseball two-plus years in most markets to get a foothold back, and that came back because of the Maguire-Sosa home run chase. Um, but in 96 and 97, in most markets, it was – here Here it was a little bit um, different because the Rangers won for the first time. But in most markets, it just was, it, it suffered. Um, and it didn't come back until the home run chase. Uh, and so my point here is, if you take this year with an extended stoppage um, and the lack of an agreement here and a, a shortened season, an artificially shortened season, add on top of it the rhetoric that is going to take place uh, between now and next year, and then the negotiations for a CBA next year, you could have a three-year window, essentially, um, that is a complete black mark on the sport. And how a sport recovers from that, especially if the NBA decides to tweak its schedule and for the first half of the baseball season, the NBA is in the heat of, of playoff races. I, I think that, that it is a tipping point and, and it is a, a, a situation where where baseball could see its popularity um, really, really diminish to the point where it becomes something of a niche sport, and that would be unfortunate. And we haven't even talked about the Astros angle of this, which was, which preceded where the sport finds itself now. And you can say, oh, well, that's, that all has been lost, but it hasn't been. When you take a step back and you look at where the sport is, when you're not just completely immersed in the, in the, CBA elements of it and take a step back that's something else I have to deal with as well well if you look at, at the history of sports and what was popular at any given time generally speaking there was something that happened you know there there are things that, that were would naturally contribute to the decline in popularity but at the turn of the of the uh, 19th uh, or the uh, 20th century uh, the biggest sports were, were boxing and horse racing and wrestling you know th those were the big three uh, and wrestling's popularity uh, w went into decline 
uh, I, I'm, I'm not talking about Evans kind of wrestling. I'm talking about a legitimate professional wrestling. Uh, when it declined, when it, when it was found out that a guy, the most the Frank Gotch, the most uh, the biggest star in the world, had paid a guy to throw a, a match. Uh, and then, then professional wrestling went downhill after that. Uh, if you look at, uh, um, at track and field, you know, I, I, for, for whatever reason, lately I've written a lot about a lot of track and field stars. And I can remember growing up, especially in Texas, how big track and field was um, and, and the stars that came from that. And then in the 80s, uh, when the, in, the, in the 90s, and when a lot of this uh, testing came out and it showed that a lot of these guys were using drugs um, and uh, on both male and female using drugs, then that was uh, it led to the decline of uh, in popularity of uh, of that as well. Uh, it's not nearly as big as it used to be in my mind. Um, so I, I think that you know that baseball is a lot bigger than both of those all of those sports were, uh, and and I think it will never just it will never just flop. Uh, but I do think uh, it will lose its market uh, share, and that'd be that'd be a real shame. I, I can't disagree with anything you've said at this point. I'm sorry about that. Evan. And you normally you, do. You usually do. You usually use any method impossible. Now I realize I'm about to run out of power here, uh, uh, besides Wi-Fi. So I'm. I'm I think I'm, we all are. <laughs> Let's just end it. Let's mercifully end it. <laughs> David, is is anybody uh, is anybody still mad that Jerry Jones didn't speak out about uh, the the George Floyd issue? Oh, I, yeah, and I think that's going to be a uh, mounting pressure there. I, I think as as uh, as soon as Roger Goodell came out and said something uh, belated, as many people believe it was, uh, then the clock was ticking on Jerry to come out and say something. Uh, he is not to this point. He. Uh, there are no indications he will anytime soon. And uh, look, Jerry will speak on this. And I will say that, um, you know, I, I don't know that this, that I, I understand the rush to fall into a public timeline on when you make a statement. And, and that is what people are looking for. And I don't want to dismiss that. But it's more important to get what you say right than it is to be in the first wave or second wave. Uh, you have to get this right because not only is it going to impact your legacy, it's going to have significant impact for the club going forward in my mind. And look, Jerry's never avoided a topic in his life, uh, often to his detriment. There are things he's uh, tackled uh, he should not have, but everyone is waiting to hear what he says on this. And, and he will say something. Uh, we just don't know when. And to me, it, but, but you look at him, what he has said in the past, and he's given himself very little room to maneuver unless he does an about face much like Goodell did, because he's been adamant that our players toe the line. Uh, you stand there for the anthem. It's a show of respect. But he's also acknowledged that, look, I understand that kneeling during the anthem isn't unpatriotic. It's not about disrespect for the flag. I understand these players are doing it to protest uh, systematic oppression, uh, police brutality. I understand that, but our players and coaches stand toe on the line for that. So that gives them very little room to maneuver in there. I mean, he's made it very clear what his opinions are. And so it is going to be interesting to hear what he says. But unlike others, 
you know, I probably I've just been around Jerry time too long. I mean, he'll he'll talk when he'll talk. You know, he'll address it. Uh, is it in the time frame most other people would adhere to? Often no, but that's why that's why the phrase Jerry time has developed. And um, and, and look, I, I don't want to minimize it. People want to hear uh, what he has to say. And uh, but that this climate is so much different than what it was three years ago when the NFL was going through this public discussion. And 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 one other point on that and is that Jerry Jerry Jones has, I think, a very traditional view of what sports is, and that is it's entertainment. It's an escape. People don't want to deal with uh, the, the overarching societal or political themes of the day. They want to get away. Uh, they want to watch a game and not worry about this political point, this ideological uh, statement. Uh, this is entertainment. It's an escape. We need to keep that pure. That needs to be what sports is about. That is the traditional view. That is his view. What he has to wrestle with now, and I think owners of all sports franchises have to wrestle with now, is is that an antiquated notion? Yep. Can you still make that separation? Or are there some public discussions that you have to enter into or you lose support. And, and he's always been able to walk that fine line of keeping players, sponsors, and fans happy by his actions before. But will that approach still work going forward? And I think those are the things he's working through. Listen, you can't, you cannot, you cannot roll the flag out there now as a symbol of America and try and state patriotism and, and commitment to the American flag without allowing, without people potentially protesting um, during, whether it's the unfurling of the flag and it's not about the flag, but it's about, you know, this, the, the treatment of, of different groups in America. You can't, you, you can't have the anthem. You can't have, you, you can't bring uh, this military presence in that you do every week because all those things also bleed over. And so if it's going to be one way, it's got to be a two-way street. And that's, uh, that's the, the conundrum that, that the leagues have put themselves in is, yes, we, everybody wants to support um, and, and be patriotic of the country, but there are also a great number of people in, in, in this country right now who feel they have been left behind and they're going to use whatever platform they have to, to make that statement. So um, either if, if the NFL and the NBA and Major League Baseball all want to be simple escapes, then there's a way to do that. And that is to take out every vestige of it being tied to American patriotism uh, that, that exists. David's going to have to go here pretty soon. I want to ask David this question. You know, um, uh, I feel like I'm a pretty good student of Jerry Jones uh, after all these years, uh, but David knows him better than I do. And uh, I, I want to ask you how much of this all along, even before all this and back when the kneeling was going on, how much of this is, is based on Jerry's personal beliefs that you need to stand for the anthem uh, and, and be patriotic and how much of it is 
this is bad for our customer base if you guys do this. Well, it is a combination of both. I don't know if I could put a percentage on it, but uh, th this is something Jerry feels strongly about, and he lets his players know. And it's and look, he does have a good relationship with his players. I mean, when this went through before, he went through and he told them why this was important to him. You know, look, I understand these. There are issues that are important to you. I want to empower you and give you the tools to work and make some progress in those areas too. So that's how they started, um, you know, the, these talks, basically these uh, almost like master's classes, if you will, where they gathered uh, judges and county judges and uh, police officers and, um, you know, nonprofit uh, organizers in the area to talk about the issues that players considered important to them to see how they could take action, how they could uh, spend their money to make a, a positive impact. So Jerry, Jerry doesn't see those two as mutually exclusive. Um, but, but I will say, look, the, the, the other element of this is uh, he is a businessman and, and I don't know that you can uh, unravel that from who he is at his core. And when you had this before, and they, before the game in Arizona, where the entire team, Jerry included, locked arms on the field, knelt on the field, and then stood up to make sure they were all standing for the anthem, they felt this was a, uh, this struck a proper chord. This still showed respect for the anthem, but also acknowledged that they were they recognized these issues of systematic oppression and, and police brutality that that impacted so many players and, and people around the country and they were sympathetic to that but also sympathetic to what the anthem stands for they have in my understanding is they have never ever had the sort of consumer backlash they had after that game uh, they were just inundated with calls saying, how dare you disrespect the flag? Why were you kneeling during the flag? And when it was brought up, well, no, we purposely did not kneel during the anthem. This was before the anthem. Uh, we made sure everyone was standing during the anthem. By and large, the response was, I don't care. And it was, you're trying to have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. If you knelt before the anthem, in my mind, you were kneeling during the anthem. And I, and they, I, I think they were surprised by the intensity of the backlash there. So it, it is a combination of the two. He truly believes that's what you should do, but he's also seen a, 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 a very aggressive pushback when they didn't even kneel during the anthem. They knelt before, and, and that stuck with him. And, and I think he's, he, it's a lot for him to work through. Yeah, it is. Uh, it, it'll be interesting to me to see what he does going forward. I, you know, um, the, uh, we, we've had this discussion with my own editors about, oh, you know, what what should we say? What should we do? I, I, and I would just go ahead and say this on this podcast. I wrote a column about my feelings about uh, what's happened with George Floyd uh, and my own personal feelings about it. Uh, submitted it to the boss. And, uh, and I was told that it was a little too similar to something that, that Someone else on staff had written uh, the same day, and uh, we were sensitive to that. We were sensitive also to the fact that that, that these were the feelings of two white people. Uh, and, and so uh, when, when I wrote it, I said, listen, I'm going to write this, and you can read it, 
And if you decide you don't want it, then fine. And, and I, gotta, I gotta tell you, I don't normally do that. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not writing just for the exercise. So, uh, but, you know, so I'm a little sensitive. If I'm asking other people to speak out, I want other people to understand it that, yeah, I have, I have two, or at least I tried to. So uh, I, I do think it's important, though. I, I went to the to the uh, uh, courageous conversations uh, at Victory Plaza yesterday and uh, yesterday morning, and and listened to the speakers there. And one of the things that Cedric Sabalo said was, "It's time for the white privilege to use their power to end white privilege." Um, and this is a this is a theme, you know. You hear this over and over again, you know. It's, oh, it's not just the people. Yes, yeah. Evan. When I talked to Delano last week, I mean, I thought he made a great point in this whole conversation about um, when we were talking about whether or not he would take a knee or why he didn't take a knee when Oakland's Bruce Maxwell did. And, you know, he very, very quickly said, it's, it, it's not about me at this point in time. He's, he said, I need white people to support me. I need white people to have my back. And then he went in and cited the example. He said, look at what happened around the country. People were supposed to stay in their homes. People were not supposed to open their businesses. White people protested because they wanted a haircut or they wanted a manicure or they went to the state house and in and, and, and mass. And the next thing that happened was all these businesses were open. He said, white people need to understand the power of their voices. And if those voices um, are, are, are used to lift up the black community, then and probably only then will will there be some degree of action taken. And I, uh, you know, you can agree or disagree with it, but I thought it was uh, I thought it was a pretty powerful comment. I agree with most of what Delano says most of the time. He's he's, uh, he's got a lot of thoughts um, that are that are really good, and we're going to let David go. Yeah. Bye, David. Bye, guys. See you. See you soon. Take care. See you. So now we can say we can talk about David. That'll be great. Um, um, yeah, you know, uh, uh, Delano was, listen, Delano always frustrated me as a player. I always thought he should have been smarter than he was on the field. He, he, he came with a pedigree. His father was a really good player. Uh, and, uh, and when you talk to, to Delano all the time, he was, he is so smart, you know, and, and then he'd make a mistake on the field. And I think, oh, Delano, how can you do that? You, you can't afford to be making mistakes, but, um, but I still, you know, he was one of my favorites uh, when he was with the Rangers, just because you, 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 when you talk to him, he just seemed to get it. You know, he, he, he understood everything, you know, there's so, so many times Evan in baseball and you, and you know, this, uh, it's not a good culture inside the clubhouse, right? It's not a, it's not a, it's not the right kind of culture. There's always been, clicks i can remember talking to tom house about this a long time ago uh about the cultures inside of a clubhouse he said you can always delineate them they're always easy to see you know and it, by by race uh, a lot of it is by who who the golfers are who are the hunters are who are the born again guys you know there there it was always always it's divided up like towards that. people who have similar likes and backgrounds as them you know i mean it, and i get some of that because i think in 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 a lot of ways we conduct our own lives that way we're just sure on to people who we have who we have some commonality with um and and i would say that yeah while those while those clicks exist i think that by and large in a baseball clubhouse um 
and really in any sport locker room, they kind of get broken down because you are all working for the same goal. And so you're able to put that those clicks aside to, to focus on, on one common goal. But I, I think like you said, Kevin, you, you know, you had the, you went to the Mavs conversations yesterday. Um, I know the Rangers um, definitely had a zoom call last week. Uh, to speak about this specifically with their with their roster of players, and I think that I think the important thing, and it it, it sounds so slow given that this is 2020, and we know you know what the what the the movement towards towards civil rights and and uh, racial equality has been, but teams are starting to have conversations that they didn't have before, and that's a big step. Um, because I know in talking to the players and talking to Willie Calhoun and talking to Taylor Hearn and talking to Delino about race, I didn't talk to players about race in the clubhouse. It's an awkward conversation to have. It, sure. You find yourself stumbling over every word. You you don't want to, you don't want to say something that, that could be perceived as offensive or insensitive or ignorant. Um, but I think what I'm finding out is that if people are willing to have those conversations, that both sides are willing to say, hey, I just appreciate the effort here. Let's, uh, let, let, the effort is what matters, and let's move forward from there. Yeah, I, and, and to kind of finish off the point, you know, when I was talking about, I think what I've found in baseball players is that most of the ones I've run into uh, after their careers were over were far more likable when after their careers were over than they were as players and i think because you know you oh you're, you're taught everything yeah you know, all people have to do is look at bull durham and look at the scene where you know uh kevin costner is telling uh um what's his name i can't remember the, the pitcher's name uh, uh Brandon's husband yeah that's right this is Brandon's husband uh, but i forget i uh, forget the actor's name yeah uh, yeah, we'll get it in a minute. So, anyways, he's telling me these are the things you got to say. This is what you have to do, and, and it's like, yeah, and look, and I get it. You know, it's uh, there are th certain things you have to do and say, but I do think that that uh, um, I have to believe there's not there has not been a lot of discussion about what is it that hey, you know, what's going on with you in your life, and what's and what's happening here, and what how do you feel about that? And that's you know, they're no different from from us, right? Uh, you know, I, I've, I mean, I, I mean, like the, you know, this is the, the one example that was universal across the, the landscape for me. And it's something that I wasn't terribly aware of. And, and I'm not preaching here. I'm not lecturing anybody, but I wasn't aware of the level of the quote unquote police talk that almost every African American parent has with his, his or her children repeatedly. And it's, you know, my dad always told me, respect the police. Um, if you're pulled over, you know, respect authority. But he never told me, you know, you put your hands on the wheel. He never told me, speak very slowly and instruct the officer on what you're attempting to do. Uh, never, told, never told me that, you know, I had to not look him in the eye. Um, things like that. It's, uh, it's a different level. And understanding that, I think has given me a little bit more insight into, into what that, that's one facet of somebody's experience. It's just given me a little bit more insight into that. And I think it's been educational for me. 
Well, I, I will say something that, uh, that in that column that uh, that's never going to run, apparently. Uh, one of the things I talked about was coming home from the uh, Final Four in Houston uh, several years ago, and it was late. You know, I decided to come on back, uh, and it was 1.30 in the morning. I'm going through Madisonville, and I got pulled over. And uh, and I didn't realize it in Madisonville that the speed limit went down 10 miles an hour as I was going well, through. everybody's stopping to go to Bucky's. Yeah, right. And, uh, uh, and so I pull over and, uh, the, uh, I can tell that the officer is walking up on my passenger side. So I roll down the window and as I roll down the window, before he even gets to the window, he says to me, you disrespected me back there. And, uh, and I'm like, what? And, and so he comes to the window again and he says it again, you disrespected me back there. And then he goes on to say, that, you know, uh, I was just going to let you go, and then you sped up when you went by me. And, and, and so I, I'm being very calm, and I just said, um, yeah, I, the car's on cruise control, you know. And that's all I said. I uh, didn't say anything else. And so he takes all his information from me, and then he, we had a little bit of a conversation. He asked me what I was doing. I told him I was coming back in the Final Four, and he goes, yeah, you're my fourth one tonight from the Final Four. And, uh, and then, so he, he hands me back all this stuff and, uh, my stuff and gives me the ticket and says, um, uh, and so then he just, he's just looking at me and I, and I know what he's waiting for. He's waiting for me to say, thank you. Like he said something like, go ahead and have a nice night. And I was so mad. I was so mad about the, the disrespected line. This is a guy who was old enough to be my son or young enough to be my son, maybe even my grandson. Uh, and, and he's, and he's telling me that I disrespected him, which has nothing to do with law enforcement here. You know, uh, why are you taking this personally? The fact that I was driving home in the middle of the night and you're saying that I disrespected you. And, and so, you know, I was so furious about the whole thing. And, and I, and, and to some point I still am. There was a part of me at one time I thought, I wish I had a lot of money and I would buy a big billboard and put it up here and say, do not stop in Madisonville you know, uh, for, or at a Bucky's because of the speed trap here. And, um, and I thought this was an aberration for me. I've been pulled over by cops before, you know, and, and they're always pleasant, you know, they come up, they ask for information, where are you, why are you going so fast? You know, it's all, it's always been fine. And this was the one time that was a little out of the ordinary and the guy didn't yank me out of the car. He, How did he it impact you? It impacted you in such a negative and visceral way, right? Yes, it did. And, and, and nothing violent happened. But I, w I was insulted. I was demeaned and insulted. And that's what he meant to do. And I thought, so, so if I feel that way now and then, and I'm sure that anybody else like me would have felt the same way, Any, anybody I know would have felt exactly the same way. What if pe this was a, a common occurrence for you? What if people did this to you all the time, every day, in some little way, people did this to you? Whether Wouldn't that not chip stare, away at you? Whether it was a stare or like Taylor mentioned, you know, walking through the parking lot in the Walmart and surprised uh, just this spring. And he was on the phone talking to his parents. He's looking for his truck and people saw him walking through the parking lot and he could hear the door locks clicking as he walked mm -hmm. by. Um, and you just become aware of that. And again, it's just, this is not me, this is not a lecture or it's not a sermon, but it's just been an educational experience to hear these things and 
to understand a little bit better about the small things, the, the, the very small things that can, make, that can build up over time that make the, the experience in, in America for, for so many African-American, um, in particular males, um, such a different and threatening experience. Yeah, that's right. You know, and, and I, I don't mind using uh, uh, my column as, as, a, as, a, as a pulpit, uh, certainly not a bully pulpit. I don't mind doing that. Um, we talk about all kinds of things in, in, uh, in the media, and, and I think it's a good thing. Uh, I know a lot of people don't care, and, and they don't want to read all that kind of stuff. It's just too bad. I'm sorry. Uh, I write lots of columns, and uh, if you don't like this one, just move on to the next one. Uh, but these are, these are real issues. I, all I'm asking people to do is to say, how would you feel? You know, that, that's the point, isn't it? Uh, I'll bring in one other thing I said in that column, which was that, you know, my, my favorite book, favorite character, uh, favorite literary character, To Kill a Mockingbird and Atticus Finch. That's why Ford's middle name is Atticus. Um, I thought and, his name was Finch. No, not Finch. They're going to name him Ford Finch. You know, it's, it's, it sounds like, that sounds like a compact car that they came with, up with in the 60s. <laughs> I'm going to go buy me a Ford Finch. I'm going to ask Ford why his middle name isn't Finch next time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, you know, it's the, it's the great scene. It's, uh, it's, it was both in the book and in the screenplay. Uh, the great scene where uh, um, Scott about her her father's influence and she said Atticus was right you don't you don't know a man until you till you stand in his shoes and you walk around in them a little while and that's and that's all I'm asking people to do just put yourself in this position ask yourself if not not a one-time thing you can't you know, for most of us a one-time thing is not it we, we just blow it off like me no a one-time thing's enough you know I I get pulled over by a cop who says I disrespected him it's, it's so ridiculous to me, uh, and and I and I couldn't imagine if I, if I had been black, what would he have said to me? You know, at that point. Uh, so I, I I I want people to just think: if you were in these people's shoes, how would you feel? You have to ask yourself that question. You cannot talk about your perspective and what you what's happened to you, and and it, listen, bad things happened to me too, and I didn't get mad about it. It's like, yeah, you, you got to ask yourself day after day after day if you're in this position how would you feel I, I have to say if i had grown up a black man i i know what i would be like now i, I would i know what my uh positions would be uh, i know how i would I, I think i know how i'd feel i'd i'd be uh the the stereotype of an angry black man uh and uh, uh and i think i think rightfully so and I, in, in a way it makes me feel bad that then then why am i not more angry uh, as, as an angry white man? Why am I not more angry about what's happened in, in America? I guess uh, I, I've, I've determined to be, uh, to be happy in my life. And, and so I guess I don't do that. But there are so many things that I see uh, at, that I disagree with and, um, and that bother me. And, and, and I just don't get it. I just don't, I don't understand why we, we do the things we do. But I guess that's the end of my sermon for today. Yes, it was a good and a good sermon. It was, but we really should go here. I've um, I've actually got to do a thing, and you've got things to do, and then I've got more things after that. Lots of things, you know. We're the, we're a thing kind of podcast, uh, the thing podcast. 
So, um, or the Ford Finch podcast. What's that? You and Finch take us on out of here. <laughs> All right, Evan. We'll see you next time. Uh, next week. Uh, are you going to be on next week? Are we? Are we going to be around? Oh yeah. <laughs> okay, good. I'm glad to hear it. All right, for for Jose who left, and for David who left, and for me and Evan who are the only guys here still standing. See you, everybody. <laughs>